Yama, and welcome to Beyond the Gap podcast. I'm your host, Phil Usher, proud Wiradjuri man from central New South Wales. In this series, we talk with both Indigenous and non-Indigenous thought leaders on what it takes to truly close the gap. Conversations on Beyond the Gap aim to investigate Indigenous Australians' relationship with corporate Australia, the influences and constructs that should be considered for best practice reconciliation action plans, and what is the best path forward to engage and empower our country's First Nations people. Today I am talking with Ian Ham. Ian is a Yorta Yorta man who has been actively involved in the Victorian Indigenous community in a personal and professional capacity for many years. Ian holds a number of non-executive roles, including Red Cross Australia, First Nations Foundation, the Koori Heritage Trust, and is also former president of the Western Region Football League. In today's episode, we discuss the major changes and attitudes towards Aboriginal affairs that Ian has seen over the past decade, why Victoria is leading the nation when it comes to Indigenous advancement, and how boards and executives can ingrain Aboriginal engagement into their strategy. This is an episode you will connect with on a personal level as a conversation truly comes from the heart. Hi Ian, thanks for joining the podcast today. Pleasure, Phil. So we're going to introduce you the same way we do with all our guests and the way that blackfellas do. If you can tell us where you're from and who's your mob. So I'm Yorta Yorta and our lands are up in the north of Victoria, southern New South Wales and northeast Victoria, around Shepparton, Yarrawonga, uh, Echuca into southern New South Wales. Uh, that's Yorta Yorta country. You lived there all your life or? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Grew up in Yarrawonga. My family's from Shep. But I grew up in Yarrawonga. Um, my journey is a bit of a different one. I'm one of the stolen children, so which is really funny actually, because Yarrawonga is only about 40 miles from Shep. I could have gone anywhere in Australia, anywhere in the world, and I end up 40 miles from where I'm from. Only I didn't know I was from there. Wow, that would have been uh, interesting to find that out for the first time. Yeah, it was just 40 k's. Wow. Can you give us a bit of background on you know what you're doing now and, and what sort of your work history has been like? Yeah. So look, Phil, I was in the public service for. 32 years. I was uh, a senior executive for, I reckon, 20 years of that, working for the federal and the state government. And I used to be the head of Aboriginal Affairs here in Victoria for a while as well. I guess about three years ago, after the last state election here in Victoria, I was kind of at the point where I'd done everything I wanted to do in government. And I'm not really sure if there was a place for me anymore in government. I think there was a bit of that as well. And I left, which was a big break to do. And I decided, I, I kind of thought, well, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I thought about after I kind of left was, so what am I going to do now? And I decided, look, I really like being uh, strategic. I think strategically, I think long term, which is what I'd always done in government. And I'd been on boards before of organisations. I thought, well, why don't I make a career out of that or a career change out of that and become a non-executive director with a few other things on top of that. But primarily, I sit on boards these days. I chair four of them and I sit on I don't know, another six or seven, uh, far too many, they tell me. But I guess that's what I do for a living now, so it's not that many. And I do a few other things besides that as well. With that 20 years in the Indigenous Affairs space, what's been some of the biggest changes, particularly in the last decade, in the approach and, and the thinking in that space? Oh, look, certainly, Phil, the biggest one has been, and, and I think one of the really things I'm proud about is that we drove this in Victoria, which now other states are following, is that we stopped thinking of the role of government to be 
to look for problems in the Aboriginal community and try to fix them as if there was singular problems. So one of the things we used to, or government used to do, was think about Aboriginal people as a series of disconnected but quite deep problems. So it was either justice or it was education or it was health. And that's how government had approached it since, God, when did I join government? Back in the mid-'80s. So there was this thing of trying to fix one thing and expecting it to fix everything. What we did in Victoria was stop thinking about the Aboriginal community as a series of disconnected problems and start thinking about Aboriginal people, Aboriginal Victoria, as a whole community. And we start to think about Aboriginal people, and I think having Aboriginal people in charge of Aboriginal affairs helped this a lot, was thinking about us as a whole community. So a person doesn't live their life in a series of silos. A person just lives their life from the day they're born to the day they die. Should we not think of the Aboriginal community as from when a person is born to the day they die? And what are the different stages of their life and where, if any, can government have a role in improving or helping that life be the most it can be? So instead of thinking about what's the worst problems and then how do we stop them getting worse, was thinking about how do we give people the best opportunity to have the best life? And you've got to start that even before people are born. And you think about those. So we shifted from this focusing on Aboriginal incarceration rates and the Aboriginal dropout rates in school and the Aboriginal life expectancy being what we're trying to stop getting worse to thinking about how do we give people the best uh, opportunity and if and what is the role of government in people's lives and also what isn't the role of government in people's lives? Where don't we have a role in community life? Changed everything. So we also took out the competitive inside government. We took out the competitiveness of departments within government because um, you reckon blackfellas are tribal? Wait till you see government departments, mate. That's tribal, I tell you. No, no, we're the most important. No, we are. No, we are. We are. And it, it was actually the Aboriginal community was having the one trying to coordinate government. And one of the things I think I, I was part of, which I'm enormously proud of, is we actually said, no, no, we're the government. We're one whole piece of government. Everybody outside of government, they look at us as one big lump of government and they expect us to know the right hand to know what the left hand is doing. And we need to think about that in how we act in government. So probably the biggest changes, and then when you go down to, I know this is a long answer, but there's a couple of ones I'm really proud of. The Aboriginal Heritage Act in Victoria, the Victorian Traditional Owner Settlement Act, which basically delivered land rights to us or the best the best we can have with land rights in Southeast Australia. The Aboriginal Economic Strategy, the reform of Aboriginal governance, which we did in this state, which was helping people get on top of governance. Yeah, and a few other things to boot, a few things around community development as well, actually thinking about where does our community want to be. Probably the biggest thing, if I was to say there was one single biggest thing, was to ask the community what was important to it, not what the data told us were the biggest issues, but ask the, the mob, what's the most important thing to you? And interestingly enough, nobody had ever recorded that stuff or didn't show up in data because you can't measure how people feel about themselves. And the biggest things that came as back were, what does it mean to be Aboriginal in the 21st century? And how do we fit into the communities around us? And in both of those, not only for now, but in the decades ahead, particularly for our children and our grandchildren. That's almost outrageous thinking, asking the community what they actually want. I know. Oh, mate, I was a heretic back in the day. <laughs> Very left field. So looking at that framework where we're, you know, shifted from that singular focus on, a, on an issue to something more broad, 
how do you take that into a boardroom or working with some of these bigger organisations that aren't really familiar with Indigenous affairs? Well, part of the thing taking into a boardroom is, first of all, there are very few Aboriginal people in boards outside of the Aboriginal space, outside the Aboriginal sector. That's one of the things. So you often find yourself, you're the only, well, to put it bluntly, you're the only black fella in the room, right? And often you might find yourself, you're the only Aboriginal person in the room in the organisation, particularly at that senior senior level where it's in governance or in senior executive, you're the only Aboriginal person. I guess one of the things that is an opportunity, there's a challenge and an opportunity around the boardroom stuff. That is that the idea, the first challenge is getting people to think of you more than just being about Aboriginal stuff. That's really a, a big challenge because people put you in this thing of, oh, look, we want to have an Aboriginal person on the board and, and when we have an Aboriginal, there's something Aboriginal on our agenda, be it deal with traditional owners, it might be something to do with land somewhere or there might be some, if it's a health organisation, how do we relate to the Aboriginal community, so on and so forth. But you've got to be more than just focusing on the Aboriginal stuff, you know. You've got to be a walking, talking boardroom and you find your experience with the Aboriginal community actually is so informative for everything else as well. One of the things which we as a people are about is we put community first. We don't think of ourselves as individuals. We think of ourselves as part of a bigger collective because first question you asked, who's your mob, where you're from, who's your community? And I didn't even get, you didn't even get to the third question, which is, and who are you and where do you fit into that? You take that into a boardroom and say, this is how our organisation needs to think, not just about our organisation, our company, our corporation our whatever it is but what is the net value or or the place of our organization in the wider society that we're part of what do we contribute to the greater good beyond just what we're doing so I think that's something Aboriginal people really bring into boardroom the other part too is is thinking about and this is where my role this is like this is just how my head's wired this is what I did in government but I tend to think about stuff in a really long term so kind of i think in 10 and 20 year cycles so where do we want to be in a decade where do we want to be in a generation and what is the broader environment in which we're operating in what does that look like and how is that changing and how do we adapt to that change so bringing that into the boardroom and that's predominantly from an aboriginal perspective i think i hope crossing my fingers here but i hope the boards i'm on see that as a great see that as a value which they haven't really thought about before and I think that's something that all Aboriginal people who the senior levels uh, can contribute and bring in and, and add to the value of the organisation as a whole. So it's not just being a specialist on Aboriginal affairs, it's bringing a, a philosophy or some underpinning conceptual frameworks that can apply across everything an organisation does and, to be honest, make it a better organisation. The, the one thing that's come up in a few episodes is that cultural loading obligation when you are the only black fella in the boardroom and it's an Indigenous issue, so you kind of get lumped with that expertise. So that's coming up a fair bit. What if they can't put a, a, an Indigenous person in the boardroom? Is putting together an advisory group a, a, an okay alternative? Certainly advisory boards or advisory um, committees is a good thing to do because it also it lightens a, the cultural load on a single individual. It also means you get a diversity of opinion. So if you've got a, a, an Aboriginal advisory group of, say, three, five people, something like that, that's a good thing because it also reinforces that not all blackfellas think the same. Too many people think that we do. And, and if you're one individual, you do get loaded not just 
for your opinion, your opinion is assumed to be the opinion of every Aboriginal people. I think having an, an advisory board or an advisory group is a really good thing because you do get that discussion, you do get that different viewpoints from within the community and you hopefully come, it, it comes together to form a broader opinion which then can be used. So I think they're a good thing to do. Uh, clearly, I think having more than one Aboriginal person in the boardroom is the best outcome, having two at least, that's great. If not, have one, but you've got to have people who have the capacity to work at that higher level who have been used, I guess, to that or have, have enough experience under their belt about being able to bring a moderated view and not just their own particular view. So my experience, for example, is being in government for a long time, a lot in the Aboriginal affairs space. I do think about when I speak, when I was in Aboriginal affairs and the head of Aboriginal affairs, I know that when I spoke, it wasn't Ian Ham who was speaking. It was the executive director of Aboriginal affairs, Victoria. So I had to think about when I speak, I'm speaking for all that, not just as Ian Ham. I take that into the boardroom. When I speak, I speak and I'm aware of the responsibility I have to provide a moderated opinion, which gives voice to those who don't agree with me. I have to speak with that voice for those who don't agree with me so that the opinion I give is something that's broad enough that will give an informed opinion rather than just a single person's view of how the world should be. There's a trick to it. There's an art to it. But I think that that's probably the prime thing. So the first thing is just don't point an Aboriginal person just because we're Aboriginal. Appoint us because we bring value to your board and we happen to be Aboriginal. What would your advice be if there's someone listening to this in the executive team or the board level and they do want to put together an advisory board but they're just so far removed from you know, Aboriginal community or they don't quite have the connections? How, how do they go around putting together an, an effective Aboriginal advisory board? I think that, look, the first thing to do is to work out, well, what do we want advice on? That's the first thing because it's easy to say, oh, an Aboriginal advisory board, yes, but what's your business and what do you want advice on? And so it's kind of you've got to work that out and then you have to think why do we want an Aboriginal advisory board and then you do that and that can take you down a couple of paths. So say you're in the um, health sector or the financial services sector or whatever it is, once you start to say, well, our business is X, so let's start to reach out to people who might have Aboriginal contacts in the X sector in whatever it is that we're in and then we start to look at, uh, talk to people about, well, who in that sector would be good people to talk to who who have a broad view of our sector's relationship with the Aboriginal community, not our relationship as a particular organisation, but our sector. So, so if you're in the health sector, you might be Upper Kambakna West District Health Service or something, and you want an Aboriginal advisory board. It might be that there's many Aboriginal people who know about the Upper Kambakna West Health Service or District Health Service, but there are Aboriginal people who work in the health sector. And so I assume that when you want, or the assumption should be, if you're getting an advisory board, you want strategic advice for them from them. You want high-level advice. You don't want minutiae operating advice. You want higher-level strategic advice. So that's kind of the filters you have to apply to work out before you have an Aboriginal advisory board. So look to what is our sector's relationship in this space, who are the higher-level people who can provide that, and then ask them for strategic strategic and directional advice, not operating minutiae. And what about making sure they're commercially paid? I know there's generally a thing that happens in this area. 
let me yeah, do it. So, yeah, no, this is a big one, particularly for me, because this is what I do for a living now. One of the things that I particularly get annoyed about is the expectation that because it's Aboriginal, it's free. No, it's not. You know, <laughs> why should it be regarded as voluntary and free because it's Aboriginal or because the person is Aboriginal or because the advice you're seeking from them is an Aboriginal, is about Aboriginal matters? No, you would pay other people for their advice. You pay other people for their specialist expertise. You should pay us for the advice we give, all of those sort of things. So it, that, that's probably one of the things which still pervades a little bit, but I have seen improvements of it. But I have to say I'm a, I'm a vocal person about it is that, and particularly if you're on a board, actually, if you're a director, Australian company directors, organisational directors, have some of the biggest regulatory burdens in the world. We've got one of the most heavily regulated areas for being a director, and that's okay, and I think we should. But if people are going to carry that burden, they should be remunerated accordingly. It also says if you pay people, you have an expectation of an organisation of the standards you expect that director to be to. And so you can say if you're going to be a director, you have to be competent to a certain level. There are certain standards you have to operate to, and we're paying you to do that. And so the onus goes back on the director to meet those. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that's a good point. Like Indigenous affairs and communication and engagement is a legitimate qualification and experience. No different to any other consultant or uh, you know accountant qualification. It's it's that level. So changing the, the conversation focus a little bit and looking at reconciliation action plans, what needs to be understood about RAPs at that board and governance level that they may not be getting at the moment? I think one of the things that's happened to the reconciliation action plan process, and it, it's part of the whole reflecting on the reconciliation process more wholly. So if you think this started the mid-90s, Reconciliation Australia started, then the whole reconciliation process... And, and reconciliation action plans were initially viewed as a tool. Now, one of the things, why, why did they come about? How did they work? Reconciliation action plans were meant to be a guide for people, a guide to help with the transformation of the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians. That's what reconciliation is about. It's a transformation um, of understanding between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And RAPs were seen of a way of outlining how that might happen with groups, whatever those groups might be, whether they're business organisations, whether they're community groups, whether they're social groups, whatever they might be. But what happened along the way is that they almost exclusively got looked at through the lens of or picked up by the corporate sector, the business sector, the working sector, for want of putting it a better way. And then they started to be about the outputs and actions as opposed to the actual outcome. The outcome being, are the people in this organisation going through the process of transforming their relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians? That's what it was supposed to be. That got lost, I think, a bit along the way. And it became about how is the organisation, so the focus wasn't on the people, the focus was on the organisation, how many outputs has it got and what actions is it doing? So it became a tick and flick exercise for a lot of organisations. Uh, not all of them, but some of them did. And it became an issue of we want to be seen to be doing things, but what are we doing those things for? Why are we doing it? That got lost. So you reached reach ultimately in some uh, circumstances where the point was completely missed, that this was some organisation started viewing these things as 
we have to do this for two reasons. One, our perception in the public, and B, they are a tool for stakeholder management, and the stakeholder in this instance is Aboriginal people. So if we do this particular set of outputs and this particular set of actions, we're CWL people and we're managing those stakeholders. The most obvious case in point being uh, Rio Tinto. So I think that that sums it up. That was completely where it had gone off the rails. I think we need to draw breath and, and go back to the roots of reconciliation. What is it for? What is it about? What are we trying to achieve? And what is the role of organisations in this? Be they companies or community groups or social groups? And then rethink, going back to what RAPs are about, are simply a tool to help that transformation happen. They are not an outcome in their own, in themselves. And doing a whole bunch of actions, unless it actually has a deeper purpose and meaning, is just a bunch of actions. That's where I think we need to go with the rap stuff, Phil. It's probably a double-barrel question, but you know, what if you're in charge of a rap and you're not quite at that senior executive level? How do you push that conversation up to make sure that it's not kind of cliched? And then if you are at that executive level, who who's sort of responsible or how do you push that down through the organisation? This happens a bit, actually. Um, I've seen in, in some different organisations where they've started to, I, I start to ask them, so why are you doing this? What is this about? How come you've got a rap? You've given it to, you know, Joe Bloggs, who's middle manager, who's responsible for it. Isn't this supposed to be about your organisation and all the people within it and how this transforms, A, your people and B, your organisation? So how is Joe Bloggs' middle manager out on the floor there supposed to drive that? That's actually a question that needs to be asked a lot of the time. And really should be, I mean, a rap should be owned by the board and should be the responsibility of the chief executive officer or the chief operating officer or someone in that very senior space who have oversight and overview of the whole organisation. And really, look, if, if, if an individual has to be have courage of it, personally, I think it should be the chairman of the board. But I say that because that's what I do for a living now on the board and I'm on the boards or the CEO, but I, that's where that needs to be because this is supposed to be about the whole organisation, not a part of it, but all of it. And it's supposed to permeate belong beyond the ordinary operating of the or, daily operating of the organisation, but be built into its DNA, be built into its very fundamental chemistry so that when the group of people who are there now move on, the organisation stays true and consistent to that transformation. That's what should happen. Now, how somebody who's been handled that in middle management is supposed to get that taken up, that's really difficult. They might be able to say, look, I'm not sure we're going in the right direction. Can we get some external advice on how we're travelling as an organisation with our RAP? We'd like to, we should do that. They can suggest that. And any half-decent, you know, external advice will come back and say, there's a few things you need to look at. One of them is the governance of your RAP within your organisation. So that's a good place to start. What are your first bits of advice for implementing this at the strategic level? You think you'd have it as a standard agenda item at each board meeting? Depending how often your board meets, but certainly you have to do it at least quarterly. I would suggest quarterly. I would also also say that you do have to can constantly ask yourself as the board, why are we doing this again? Why are we in this space? Do we have a role in this? You have to continually ask yourself that to remind yourself as a board why you're doing it, what you want to see happen. Are we doing it because we think we need to because it looks good on our public promotions? 
Are we doing it because we have to interact with the Aboriginal community around the business that we do? Are we doing this because we, as a board, believe in building a better Australian society and improving the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people? You've got to keep asking yourself that as a board to remind yourself why you're doing it. And if you all kind of, and if you find that the answer to that isn't a very substantive one or a deep one or it's something you have to do as opposed to something you're committed to, my advice would be you're better off not doing it because you're actually going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt the Aboriginal community. You're actually just, you know, if you're not in the space, don't. This has to be more, it's got to be a human commitment expressed through an organisation, not just an organisational output that you have to tip off. How can executives or directors kind of keep their finger on the pulse for, you know, Aboriginal politics and challenges that are going on? Because you think they're, they're operating, you know, maybe billion-dollar companies, they've got a global pandemic, we're looking at economic issues and interest rates going to zero or minus. How do they keep across such, I guess, a small percentage of their uh, day-to-day in Indigenous issues? This is where the value of networking and talking to people comes into comes into play. Obviously, those formal structures any organisation has for feedback and, and that type of stuff and measurements and key outcomes and performance indicators, there's all that. But equally as important is how do people feel, getting out and asking people and talking. I think one of the things I've seen over time is efforts by people to actually connect and get to know blackfellas, some of the mob, you know, that's actually a really important thing to do. First and foremost, we're a people people. So we don't bite, well, you know, not generally. But get out and meet people for the sake of getting out and meeting them, not because you have to, but because you should want to. You should want to inquire. You should have an inquiry mind. You should ask questions. You should just get to learn to know people. And that's not just in the Aboriginal space. If you want to be an effective senior executive or board member, You've got to get out and have an inquiring mind and talk to people. How is the decisions we make in the boardroom, which might be multi-million dollar decisions, how do they affect an ordinary person on the ground? That's really important to do. Going back to my term in government, my, my time in government, I know as a senior executive, I used to reflect on the time when I just started out in government and I was but a young project worker and I had to tell somebody we couldn't do anything to help them. And it was just... It was really, you know, you just feel completely helpless or hopeless. There was that. And I never forgot this woman who I couldn't do anything to help because, you know, A, I'm just a lowly program officer and I was kind of down the bottom as it were. But I never forgot that lesson of this program, the way it was constructed by somebody who I never met out of Canberra, who I never would meet, that kind of stuff. And there was a dirty great gap in their program and I couldn't do anything about it. I always remember that was one of the drivers for me for wanting to reform the whole approach to Aboriginal affairs. And in doing that, was thinking about if I want to advocate for policy this, how does that affect an ordinary person on the ground? And how am I going to check that? I'll go and ask a few ordinary people first and do that. I think that that's true of being a director of a company, of being the chairman of the board, of being the CEO, all of those, those levels. Sometimes you just got to go and mix it with the punters and just ask them. I think that's so simple is just to kind of get out in the outreach. And I know we spoke about before not waiting for the more attractive opportunities where you're going up to Cairns or you're going out to, you know, um, to Broome to do the engagement. If you've got community outreach in Redfern or La Perouse or 
some of those places down in Victoria, you'll get just as good of an experience. Landscape mightn't be as pretty, uh, but get out in, into that community as well. One of the final things we'll, we'll finish on, and you touched on a bit earlier, I guess the not so much advantage, but the importance of having Aboriginal person in charge of Indigenous affairs or Aboriginal programs. What's sort of the insight that Aboriginal people bring to that role that might be able to be received from a non-Indigenous person, even though they may have community experience? What's what's some of those nuances and differences? Oh, look, the biggest thing, Phil, was was being Aboriginal. You you think about it's not as a client group that you when you go home you stop being that. Been Aboriginal all my life. That I happen to be the head of Aboriginal affairs just meant I got paid for it for a bit, you know. But it did. It did mean I. I thought way beyond just the data and the policy frameworks and the objectives of government and all of that. I thought about it as all the nuances, all the small things, all the big things, and seeing what lay behind or understanding what what was going on behind what was immediately obvious. All of those things. That's what you bring. That deep understanding, and it brings a better outcome. For, for in, in my case, it was in government. I think now what I do on, on boards, particularly the ones I chair, I think I bring a better understanding and broader and deeper understanding of the Aboriginal community because of the, the boards I chair or on the boards I chair because of being Aboriginal. And, and to be clear, some of those aren't Aboriginal organisations. Some of those are non-Aboriginal, but they want to work with the Aboriginal community. So having me as chair brings that deeper thing. So instead of doing a single thing because there's a single issue. It's understanding, okay, what's the context that all of that sits in? What else is going on in the lives of the Aboriginal community? So being Aboriginal in charge of Aboriginal affairs as I was in government, I just had a different vision of the world. I mean, I broke the golden rule of the public service, which was we're supposed to implement the policies of the government of the day. But what if the government doesn't have any policies? What if all the policies the government have are not doing anything? We're certainly not content. And, and I actually, look, confession time, I'll do this on a podcast, I brought my own agenda to Aboriginal Affairs when I went there, first as Deputy Director, then as Executive Director. I had my agenda and it was much more expansive and bigger than than the government's and it, it, great credit to the government at the time when I had the opportunity to, to say this is how we should, should see this, this is how we should be thinking, this is what we should be doing, they basically said, you're right. Let's go down that path. It was a bumpy road, a difficult one, but I look now, Victoria is miles in front of every other state and territory. Um, the Aboriginal Affairs framework we've had here since 2006 and, and the developed iteration since then, that's what the new Closing the Gap framework is based on. I, I looked at that when it was first, when it was launched and I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, I know where that came from. It does make you a little bit proud of some of the work you do. God, I'm tearing up at that. But it does because you, you make a substantial difference because you're Aboriginal. This isn't just a job. This is substantially committing yourself to improving the destiny of our people. That's what you bring to it. Uh, that's the difference you make. And it's certainly, like I said, we're miles ahead of in Victoria. We're doing treaty for God's sake. We've got a, we've got a First Peoples Assembly. We got here because back in the day, a few of us working hard cleared the decks of a whole bunch of stuff. So what was the big thing left? Well, there's treaty and we're in a space to do that now because it's not clouded up with everything else because we're dealing with that too. And that's where we are at the moment. 
I think, and, and you can hear it when you're talking, is that relentless passion. You know, this isn't a, a KPI. This isn't about the bottom line. This is when you have a black fella in charge of Indigenous affairs, it's extremely personal on a personal mission and, and looking to close that gap. So I think that's yeah come across really well. Always love your perspective and chiming in this conversation. You always bring sort of left field ideas. If anyone's listening and they want to reach out or they want you to be on their board after we've made that um, comment a bit earlier, how can people contact you? I'm pretty easy to find. You can Google me and <laughs> find me there. Contact me through the First Nations Foundation. Uh, they're pretty, they know where I am too, or any one of the other boards that you might see that I'm on, they know how to get me as well. And the ubiquitous LinkedIn profile. So you can also email me via that. I'll jump in. He's not huge on social media. So firstnationsfoundation.org.au, send us an yeah, email. Yeah, do, do that. Thanks for your time, Ian. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Phil.